in the same way in which people are taking on the task of being anti-racist, we have to take on the task of making this an immigrant and refugee-loving country. And that's a lot of hard work. That was Maria Hinojosa, whose nearly 30-year career as a journalist includes reporting for PBS, CNN, and NPR, as well as anchoring and producing the Peabody Award-winning radio program Latino USA. She's also the founder of Futuro Media, an independent not-for-profit whose multimedia content provides a platform for people often overlooked by mainstream journalism. Her new memoir is Once I Was You, and she spoke with our assistant editor, Regina Mudge. This is the Commonweal Podcast. Uh, hi, Regina. It's good to have you here. Hi, Dominic. How are you? Doing well, thanks. And I'm looking forward to hearing about your talk with Maria Hinojosa. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about what you guys spoke about? We covered a lot. We talked about her long career of journalism covering the forgotten people in forgotten places. We talked about the history of immigration and xenophobia in the United States, her own family's immigration history, and the role that people of faith have to play in making the U.S. immigrant friendly and anti-racist. Very nice. Thanks, Regina. Why don't we take a listen? You begin your memoir with the story of an encounter with a girl in McAllen Airport in Texas. Could you tell us about it? I called on the words of my mentor, Sandra Cisneros, the writer of House on Mango Street. And she said, you don't always have to write about what you remember. You can write about what you've forgotten, what you wish you could forget, what you're trying to forget, things that are ugly, that you want to forget them. And so I thought about that. And this was the scene that came to mind, a scene that I would have loved to have never have witnessed. And then at the same time, I'm really as a journalist, I'm so glad. And as, a, as an American and as an immigrant, I'm glad I witnessed because probably some people who are listening before the pandemic, when we were traveling all the time, probably witnessed the same thing, which was uh, trafficking of children. And so I, I encounter this group of kids in the McAllen airport at seven o'clock in the morning, and they're all wearing these really ill-fitting sweatsuits. They clearly were not members of a team. Kids in an airport are usually happy bouncing around. And these kids were numb. And so that is the encounter of just having a moment to speak to one of these children who the previous president had labeled threats to this country. When I cover stories, I, I don't know where I got this from. I think it's from my mom and my grandmother, which was to see people's humanity. And I think that as an immigrant growing up in this country, it's what I wanted. It's not necessarily that's what happened. Remember, I was growing up as a little kid during the tail end of the civil rights era. So I was able to see some of this. So I, I think I wanted people to see my humanity. And I think I was taught to see other people's humanity. And as a journalist, this is actually a very important tool to me. If you give humanity, you're going to get humanity back. And I think that makes for better journalism. Can I read some of your words back to you on that topic? I thought this was great. You wrote, to me, being a reporter meant seeing the humanity in everyone especially people who are perceived as invisible and then making it hyper-visible to others. Yeah, because you see, the thing is that when you grow up feeling invisible, it actually has an impact on you. I mean, in my case, very particularly, not only was there just the general invisibility of being a Mexican immigrant on the south side of Chicago, but then there were no women journalists in the United States. I began to see women journalists in Mexico, but they didn't exist in the United States. And so when you don't see yourself, then you think 
that one, that your story is not valid, that, that you don't exist. The long-term impact could have been that I would have just like completely internalized that invisibility and let it shut me down. Instead, I, because I have privilege, I was able to understand the invisibility and then make a commitment as a journalist to fight against it. What stories have you made visible that were invisible at the time before you, you showed them to people? It so happens, you know, I was the first Latina correspondent hired at NPR. So of course I was going to have a different perspective. I was the first Latina in the editorial meetings. I'm trying to think there were so many stories, whether I was like, hey, we live in Washington, D.C. Did you all know that there's a huge Salvadoran population in Washington, D.C.? This was in 1985. And nobody had reported about it. And the reason why Salvadorans were in Washington, D.C. was because they were refugees in the 1980s, as they are today. You know, I produced a piece with Scott Simon. This was when I was an assistant producer. And I produced a piece about crack, actually. But everybody else was like sirens and this, this mystique around crack. Well, you know, I did my homework and we happened to meet up with somebody who happened to be a sex worker. Um, and we met him in Bryant Park. His name was Hawk. And he told us his story. And then you understood a little bit more who he was. It wasn't just like, masses of people, black people using crack, you know, these very racially charged images. When I got to CNN many years later, they used to joke. They used to call me the Bronx Bureau Queen, um, you know, Bronx Bureau Chief, Bronx Bureau Queen, because they had, CNN had never sent a reporter up to the Bronx to cover a story. What are you talking about? But I, I feel like I do this, you know, people know me for doing this, like in places like New York, but I was recently interviewed in Boise, Idaho, public radio. <laughs> and the people of Boise, Idaho, they know my work. And it's like, I did the same for Idaho. People have reduced Idaho to like potatoes and white supremacists. And it's just, it's much more complex. And so I like to go places that are misunderstood, misrepresented and forgotten. And I do it with a tremendous amount of hope and respect, I hope. One thing that's been in the news a lot recently is conditions in immigrant detention camps. And at the beginning of the Obama presidency, when you were reporting, that aspect of immigration policy and injustice wasn't really on the radar. What was happening at that time and how did you investigate it? Oof. Well, what's important for people to realize is that we did just live through something quite horrific together as a country, the taking of children as a form of policy punishment. And really the bottom line is that the only difference between us and some you, for example, is that we were not born in this country. And if you were not born in this country, that meant that you you could have your children taken away from you. But the sad thing is that this did not start in 2015 when Donald Trump began running for office and insulting Mexicans. What people need to understand is that there is a narrative about the United States of America that we are this immigrant-loving, refugee-loving country with the Statue of Liberty. And it's a nice narrative. It's not exactly true, though. It's more complicated than that. The first people who were excluded by law from the United States of America were Asian women. I have a relationship now to Asian women. I am an immigrant. My mother could have been excluded from this country. So this narrative of open door never been open doors, but you know, that we see you, you're tired, you're hungry, we, you rest upon us. No. So if we want that, everybody has to fight for it and actively fight for it in the same way in which people are taking on the task of being anti-racist 
we have to take on the task of making this an immigrant and refugee-loving country. And that's a lot of hard work. So basically, it started in the 1880s, if you want to talk about legally. Bill Clinton built the wall. He started building the wall. He ran on an anti-immigrant platform, Bill Clinton. George H.W. Bush was actually really good for refugees, Central American refugees, of course. They helped create the problem because the Reagan administration was actively bombing Central America creates refugees, then, you know, oh my God, we're helping to save the problem. But whatever it is, it was a Republican administration that increased the number of refugees allowed into this country significantly. And then under Trump, you know, Obama becomes the deporter in chief. Actually, along with Nixon deported very high numbers of people. People don't really talk about this, but so did Obama. Shame on him. He'll need to apologize for that and, and work to make it better. So there is a long history of this happening. And what we did just witness was the worst example of it, which again, we know that babies have been taken from their parents. And we know that women's uteruses have been taken from them unwillingly. I think that's enough to say this needs to stop. What would an immigrant and refugee loving country look like? And how do we build that? I like to make a joke of, okay, let's just try to imagine what what it would look like if all immigrant-friendly and POC-friendly journalists were running our news media. And so I'm like, imagine if the headlines were like one day, oh my God, Mexican people are the hardest working, sweetest people ever. You know how we all like to take vacations to go there? Oh my God, they're coming here and we love them. They're going to be amazing for our country. For example, uh, next day, another headline. Oh my God, the Somali people have the most fascinating traditions and we're going to learn all about them as they come here to the United States as refugees. And we're going to get informed about another part of the world. Another headline. I'm being facetious here, but you know, oh, did you know the people of Pakistan have the centuries old tradition of spiritual worship that involves meditation and we're all now going to be able to learn it? Oh my God, this is going to be so cool. And another headline. Can you imagine how many interesting and fascinating people you're going to be able to fall in love with? Wow. And so then you'd be like waking up and you'd be like, oh, hey, hey. And you wouldn't feel threatened. You know, the headline would be, hey, welcome every single immigrant because guess what? As their economy goes, so does the rest of the country. Or welcome immigrants into your neighborhood because they bring less crime, not more. These are all true. Everything that I said, that is what it looks like. It looks, I'm being, again, facetious, overly dramatic, but actually at this point, given everything that we've lived through, that's what it's going to have to look like. And, you know, a national day of mourning and reconciliation for the horrors brought upon the people who all they wanted was to believe in what this United States says that it's about. I mean, you say you, it's false advertising. And it continues today. So the Biden administration has a narrative right now where they're like, you know, as they're announcing these, you know, wonderful executive orders that we hope will really begin to take effect and have an impact on human lives. But at the same time, they're saying, oh, but don't come to the United States right now. If you were thinking about it, this isn't a great time. I am sorry. That is an insult to people who are refugees. That's as if we would be saying 
to people escaping Nazi Germany. Oh, don't come with, you know, but could you choose a better time? Or the people of Vietnam. You know, can you just wait a little while? We're not really ready. No, I don't accept that. One year ago today, Pope Francis invited us to view the pandemic as a time for conversion. With vaccinations on the rise, we need to carve out space to grapple with our grief, our anger, and our desire for a changed world. This June, join Commonweal for a three-part series on spirituality in a time of reckoning. Starting on Thursday, June 10th, and continuing on the following two Thursdays, Commonweal will host conversations with some of today's most prophetic voices, including Marcy Chatlin, Cecilia gonzalez Andreu, and Father Brian Massengale. All events will take place virtually. You can register at cwmag.org slash events. That's cwmag.org slash events. We've seen recently a resurgence of Christian nationalism and how Christianity has been used to discriminate against people coming to this country, especially people of color. Is there a role that you see for belief or religious belief or spirituality in welcoming people and fighting racism? Oh, my God. Like, you all have the role to play. This is your historic moment. This is your moment to lead. I'm going to tell you a a very condensed story, but I think it says something about how I operate in the world And certainly as a spiritual human being who is open to loving her fellow man and woman. This was, I don't know, the years all get blurred. It was in 2018, 2019, maybe 2019. And I was in Chicago. It was early morning and a Lyft driver, a white man who was in his mid-50s, came to get me and was driving me to the airport. And I talk politics with everybody. That's just the way I am because I'm a journalist. And so we, I asked him if he, who he liked. And he was like, I really love Trump. And I was like, okay, why? And he said, well, because Trump is only motivated by love. And I was like, tell me more. And he was like, well, he doesn't need any money. He has everything that he needs in the world. And so he is motivated by love and by goodness. And I just was like, wow, okay. And then I listened without judgment. And then I told him a little bit about, well, as New Yorkers, I got to tell you, New Yorkers actually see Donald Trump as a con man because we've just kind of been around for a while. But also as a Mexican immigrant woman journalist, you know, this is very gently. When I get out of the car, he hands my bag to me. It's Christmas time. And he says something about Jesus, actually. He meant, he says Jesus. And I happen to think Jesus Christ is extraordinary. I may not be a religious follower of Jesus Christ, but oh my God what he stood for. And so when he's, when this man said, you know, my love of Jesus Christ and may he bless you. And, and I said, sir, I'm very sorry to say to you right now, but I hope you understand that Jesus Christ, if he came knocking on the doors of this country as a refugee, what he was, Mary and Joseph, refugees, homeless, barefoot, pregnant, they would be forced to sleep on the concrete In Mexico, in Matamoros, or Juarez, or Rio Piedras, Piedras Negras, 
I spoke from the heart. I mean, this was I because I was like, it's true. He would not be able to make it in my law here right now. Do you understand? And this man just looked at me and he said, oh, my God. Oh, my God, I didn't know. And I said, well, that's what policy looks like. And then he said, well, can I hug you? And I said, of course. And then he hugged me. People see me and see me as with an element of distrust because I'm Mexican. I'm an immigrant. I'm a journalist. I'm not Christian. I'm no longer Catholic. I I was raised Catholic, but deeply spiritual. And so people may not trust the words coming from me. But internally, the conversation is at the base, love. You know, love the one most different than you, said Jesus to Mary Magdalene. Love the person most unlike you. The the most humble person who means that person has been humiliated. That is what Jesus Christ represents to me. And so in my world as a journalist, I attempt to keep my humility because the people who I'm talking to often have nothing, just the way that Mary and Joseph had, and that later Jesus Christ identified with those people who had nothing. So you are on the front lines. I have so much trust and hope and faith in the conversations that your communities must and need to be having because it is a historical and religious and spiritual imperative. Where do you see humility operative today? What do we need from journalists in particular in terms of humility? And maybe how does race influence that? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, because what we need is humility in certain parts of the profession. And then what we need on the other parts of the profession is more ego, frankly. Could you say more? Yeah, because see, what happens is that we, with all due respect, we just have to speak fact, right? The fact is that overwhelmingly 97% of all of the journalism that we all consume, all of the media that we all consume, ultimately the buck stops with an older white cis man of privilege who presents heterosexual and often Christian, actually. They own the networks, they own the newspapers, they own the the means of production. We have all basically been raised to believe that they have the purview on objectivity and fairness. Well, how is that possible? Now, when you have that kind of power, it builds up your ego and you believe that you're right. I mean, how do we we have so many movies where white men are the saviors? Come on. It just makes sense. You do it in your own likeness. It's just we're human beings and they need to be more humble. They need to do more listening. They need to understand history and read history from a perspective that is not of a white man. History written by the likes of Frederick Douglass, for example, my founding father is a journalist, right? How is he reading and interpreting this country and doing journalism about this country? Ida B. Wells, you know, who was born into slavery and becomes an investigative journalist. And when she's doing her investigations into lynchings, she's told by white male journalists in the United States, come on, Ida, why are you reporting about lynchings? What do you have, some kind of political agenda? Lynching isn't a story. They happen all the time. So now what we need is more independent journalists of color and of conscience to step up to the plate. And our field, the field of journalism, has been one of the slowest to, quote unquote, diversify, which I dislike as a term, because the problem is that at this point, all I want to talk about is excellence in journalism. Like I'm done talking about like the equity, representation, the right thing, the market value. It's excellence in journalism. If you do not have a newsroom, that looks like America. And I'm going to be like, yeah, 
percentage wise, then you, there is no way that you can be committed, that you can be creating excellent journalism, period. And so now what are you going to do? Could you tell our listeners the story that you recount in your book about the song that your cousin sang to you and what it taught you about identity? Because I thought that was a wonderful story. Well, actually, I'm going to go one step further and tell you a little bit more about my cousin, because my cousin considers himself the deepest Catholic in my entire family. He is Opus Dei, and uh, I love him very much. But he, through his Catholicism, and he wasn't this way before, but through his Opus Dei Catholicism, he has become so judgmental and exclusionary of people. He didn't talk about the fact that I, yeah, he's read my book, that I had two abortions and I'm still here. I'm not a criminal. I'm a mother of two adult children who I love and a husband who I've been married to for 31 years. So you can't judge me. He is a judge of people who are LGBTQ and not knowing that his own family members are LGBTQ, but he doesn't know and he insults and judges and he considers himself to be the most pious and God-loving, and Jesus-loving. You know, this moment occurred in our family where he basically has a moment with my mom, who is an American citizen, but is Mexican through and through, you know, was basically his second mom. And he says to my mom at one point in a heated argument about politics, Mexican politics, he says, well, you're an American citizen. You don't have a valuable opinion for what happens in Mexico. You need to go back to the United States. My cousin is telling my Mexican mom to go back to the USA. And I have this moment with him where I'm just like, bro, but, you know, wait a second, you were my cousin, the one who saw me for what I was. You would never have sent me back to the United States packing when I was a little girl because you used to sing to me in those rainy afternoons in Mexico City summers. You would sing to me many songs, including La Golondrina, which is a form of a bird La golondrina is a swallow, and and swallows, he, you know, in the song, it's you come and you go, you come and you go, but you always come back. It's a bird that migrates. And he was like, and you, my little cousin, migrate back and forth. You're always crossing them, but you always come back. And then I said that to him. I said, that's who you are, primo. Not somebody who is going to stand in judgment of me and hatred, sadly. It's not fully resolved. We're in the process, but it's actually quite painful. As you're growing up and encountering different aspects of American culture or Mexican identity, sometimes you're made to feel not American enough, and sometimes you're made to feel not Mexican enough. But the way you end the book, I think, is so wonderful in that you see yourself in so many of these other stories that you've encountered from refugees from Vietnam to Salvadoran immigrants to so many of the stories that you cover. What identity ties you together with so many of these different groups? I wonder, you know, I. I think about that. Is it just like feeling the other? Is that what it is? Is it that notion of the invisibility? Maybe the capacity to listen? I'm not sure. I think as humans, we all have to work on it. It's not easy. The thing is, is that people actually are asked very rarely to talk about themselves. And so when you're able to understand that, and I just think, I mean, so I, I have multiple jobs because I'm a Mexican immigrant. I can just never say no to work. So I like to joke that I have 16 jobs. And yeah, I have Futuro Media, which I created. I'm a journalist. I'm a writer. Um, I'm a public speaker. I'm a mom, a wife, but I'm also a college professor. And I tell my students that 
like when I'm interviewing them, because I get to know them and they're like, I don't have a really interesting story. And all of a sudden they start telling these stories and you're like, oh my God, wow. And I find myself reacting like that to most people who I meet, not just immigrants, refugees from, you know, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Bangladesh. No, I'm going to give you a perfect example. So right now I am in a little town in Connecticut where we have a teeny tiny cottage. It's mentioned in the book. And I go to the post office here. And the woman who works at the post office is a white woman who is, I mean, I'm friendly with everybody. And so we got, you know, hey, I was sending so many copies of my book every week, you know. And she knew me. She was like, I know who you are. I was like, oh, well, how cool. This and then she starts telling me her story. And she's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, my dad, actually, how pertinent, super Catholic. Her father moves the entire family. I think she says there were nine kids altogether, if not 12, maybe. And they all come. He helps to come build the abbey in our little town. That's how Catholic they were. And I'm like, oh, my God, Vera, I said, I cannot wait until summer comes along so that you can come over and you can sit on my deck and you can tell me your whole story. So, and again, she, she's just a white woman. No. So that's why I'm like, I love people's stories. And I wish that we would tell each other more of our stories and that people would feel prouder of these stories and less shame. Vera wasn't ashamed of the fact that she grew up poor. She was like, oh yeah, we grew up super poor. There are nine of us, you know, so there's a lot of shame that comes in this country because we don't have that perfect, whatever it is, Hollywood story. And that's what I hope we would tell is through our humility, just share more of our stories because there's no shame there. There's it's going to make us be better human beings and neighbors. The more we tell our stories authentically. And so that means that all of you have to ask people, tell me your story. And then you have to listen and then you have to be prepared to tell your own. Thank you, Maria. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for the interview. I, I really loved it. Maria Hinojosa is also the host of a new podcast called Suave about juvenile justice and incarceration. You can find it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Her interview with Regina also appears in our April print issue. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>